Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're back in the book of Colossians. Last week we had a uh, momentary diversion, and, uh, but we're back in it today. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 18 and then narrowing in on verse 16, but let's pray first. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you, God, that you're faithful to every single word in there. That you speak it and then you bring it to pass. You are that God. Thank you that your word is trustworthy, that it is inerrant, it is correct, it is right, and it is our rule for doctrine and for living. We ask that today you would reveal yourself, that Jesus, you would reveal your majesty and your supremacy in a fresh way through your word. And you would work in our hearts in such a way that you would be continually enthroned upon the hearts of this church and our hearts as individuals. Jesus, you said the Holy Spirit is the teacher of all things, so Holy Spirit, teach us. And Holy Spirit, it's your job to testify of Christ. So testify in our midst this morning. Let Jesus be exalted in the word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in a moment, we're going to read verses 15 through 18. And as uh, I mentioned earlier, we're going to be narrowing in on verse 16. But last time we were in Colossians, we looked at verse 15. We just spent a whole morning talking about just that one verse. That verse is very, very important doctrinally. So if you weren't here when we studied Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, you need to get a hold of that teaching. Uh, This one dovetails with it. And so either by CD or on the internet or however, get your hold, or get a hold on that lesson. Uh, You need to know what it means that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You need to know exactly what it means that he is the firstborn of all creation. Realize in our passage today that Paul is defending the deity of Jesus Christ. We've mentioned previously something called the Colossian heresy. And that is that Greek philosophical ideas were beginning to penetrate into the church in Colossae. One of those ideas was that a holy and perfect God could not possibly have created matter. The Greek philosophers decreed that all matter was evil and so that God could not have made it. And so that the way that creation came into being, they postulated, was that there were a series of emulations that came, or emanations, excuse me, a series of emanations that came from God. And finally, there was one emanation that was far enough from God to create matter, which they assumed was evil, but close enough to God to have the power to create And so then because of that philosophical structure, they then begin to think within the Christian church that to get to God, they had to go through the series of emanations. And they classify Jesus as just one of those emanations, as a very important one, but not as being God himself. And so Paul is making a defense in this passage to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Very important and pertinent in our world today. Because the New Age movement, which is very popular, uh, uh, seeks to cast aspersion upon the deity of Jesus Christ. As does Eastern mysticism, as does Hinduism, Buddhism, the deity of Jesus Christ is denied by Jehovah's Witnesses, by Mormons, and Islam. They all speak of a type of Jesus, but they have incorrect views. They don't necessarily seek to deny him altogether, but they do seek to dethrone him ultimately. And so the Bible, in this passage, verses 15 through 18, gives us a clear, unmistakable, irrefutable definition 
of the identity of Jesus Christ. Let's start reading in verse 15. It says concerning Jesus. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. What we have here is not merely a definition, not merely a defense or a discourse or a discussion, but we have a clear and powerful declaration of the majesty, authority, supremacy, and superiority of Jesus Christ. And I believe that as Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was penning these words from that prison in Rome, that there was an attitude of worship in his heart. As he was just writing out, Christ is above all. He's above every rule and authority and power and dominion. He is the first. He's got first place in everything. There's a beautiful attitude of worship in these verses. And this Jesus spoken of here, whom you Christians know and love, is the cause of all things. He is the constructor of all things. And he is the consummation of all things. That is to say, all things exist because of him, by him, and for him. He is the beginning of everything that is. And he is to be the end of everything that is. He himself is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. It all started with him and it will all end with him because everything exists for him. And you, Christian, know this Jesus. You have access to this Jesus. And maybe more importantly, you are known by him. It's not just as though you have friends in high places. You have the friend in the highest place. This Jesus, whom you know, his name is above every name. His name is the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. He has been exalted to the highest place. All things have been put into subjection under Him. He is the victor and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you know Him, Christian. This is unbelievable. And my exhortation for the Christian and the non-Christian alike today is this. Do not be the only piece of matter in the universe that refuses to give praise to that name. The Bible declares that all matter in the universe will praise the name of the Lord. It says in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The firmament, the stars, the heavens, the planets are telling of the glory of God and they are declaring the work of His hands. And then on earth, we're told that at the second coming of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 55, 12, that the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. At the second coming of the Lord, even the mountains and the hills will recognize... (gasps) 
Here comes the king. Here comes the one who made us. Here comes the master. And the trees will go. Oh, here he comes. They will all shout the praises of the Lord. Why? Because not is it all created by him, but not only is it all created by him, but it all exists for him. Your every breath is for Jesus Christ. So everything in the heavens declares the glory of the Lord. Everything on the earth will sing and clap when he comes. He created, according to our verse, verse 16, everything that is visible and everything that is invisible. The spiritual realm. Now it says concerning the spiritual realm in our passage. Verse 16. It speaks of the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There seems to be depicted in Scripture this hierarchy in the spiritual realm of angels and fallen angels. That there is a hierarchy that is unseen. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And what the Word of God says here is that Jesus created them all. He is over the entire spiritual realm, combating that false philosophy that was going around Colossae, that he was just part of that spiritual realm. No, he is above it all, and he made it all. And we see that reflected by what the angels are doing in heaven. The angels who are around the throne of God are continually singing his praises. When they're in front of the throne of God, they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. The entire angelic realm sings of his glory. And these are incredible beings. Anytime someone in the Bible encounters an angel, they either fall down on their face as a dead man or they begin to worship the angel. And the angel goes, Stop! What are you doing? Are you insane? Loose paraphrase here. Stop worshiping me. Are you kidding me that you would worship me, the angels would say? When I'm around the throne of God, dude, I've got six wings. With two of them, he's so gnarly, I cover my eyes. With two of them, I cover my feet. And then I got to keep two to fly. And the whole time I'm singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you are foolish enough to fall down and worship me, the angels would say. Worship him who made us, who is infinitely greater than us. It's the same thing with the fallen angels. In the gospel accounts, when a demon would encounter Jesus, that person that was demonized would fall before Jesus Christ. Oftentimes. Or it even says that the demons would verbally recognize him. We know who you are. You're the son of the most high God. And then they would say, have you come to torment us before our time? You see, the angels, or the demons, excuse me, knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had absolute authority and dominion over them. Oh no, Jesus, have you come to torment us before our time? And the word used there in the Greek is a word for worship. They would fall before him in worship, not the way that we do in adoration of, oh Lord, I love you. But in the sense of, oh God, I am obliged to worship you. You are the creator and the king. You're over every dominion and authority and rule and power. And they had to bow before our Lord. This is wonderful news, Christian. You know what that means? That means that there is absolutely no reason for the Christian to be afraid of demons. 
There is no reason for the Christian to be afraid of demons. Jesus has absolute rule and authority over them. In fact, it says in the book of James that the demons know that God is one and they shudder at the fact. When they think about the triunity of God, the deity of Jesus Christ, the demons go, (laughs) scares them to death. There is no reason for the Christian to be afraid of demons. Because your friend on high, your king in whose kingdom you have been placed, is above all. And you are under the covering of his authority. He might call you to do some spiritual battle, but we fight from a place of victory. Imagine if you played for uh, the local high school football team here, the Carpentry Warriors. They've got a big game coming up against a, a, a school that's pretty highly ranked. Imagine if you're on that football team and you were able to travel forward in time and you observe the game and you saw that you win a decisive victory in that game, that you, Carp Warriors, absolutely win that game. And then you go, yeah, amen. And then you go back in time, and now it's the evening that you're going to play that game. How would you play? You would play that game with bravado. You would play that game more radically than you've ever played any game in your life because you would know that you cannot lose. You would be playing from a place of sure victory. And so it is in the Christian life. We may be engaged in a battle, but we battle from a place of sure victory. And so we ought to battle with bravado. We ought to battle with boldness and with security because we are in Christ Jesus and he is a king over every rule and authority. Amen? It's important doctrinally that we see that in verse 16 because part of the Colossian heresy was that they were beginning to worship angels. Again, angels being some of those emanations coming forth from God. And they thought that they had to go through the various emanations to get to God. We see that reflected in chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul writes, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. And so the Bible makes it very clear that we are not to worship angels or anyone other than God. Nor do we have to go through angels or anyone other than God himself. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. There is one mediator. You don't need anybody between you and God. Christ Jesus has opened the way to himself. He is God himself. He is the only mediator. And so not only does the Bible forbid the worship of angels, saints, Mary, and anybody else, but it says that it is not necessary to go to them for intercession. You do not need to look to Mary for intercession or to saints or to angels or to anybody else. The Bible simply does not teach that. Bible says that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. Why would you go to anyone else when it says in the Bible that Jesus himself is making intercession for us? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is living to make intercession for you himself, God himself. So why would you ever go through anybody else? 
Romans 8, 26, and 27, as if it weren't enough that Jesus himself intercedes for us, so does the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit also helps our weakness, it reads. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He intercedes for the saints, that is Christians, according to the will of God. So according to the word of God, the Son and the Spirit intercede for us, two members of the Godhead. And so listen, the doctrine of the Bible simply leaves no room for going through angels or so-called saints or Mary or any other intermediary. The Bible leaves no room for it. Paul in our passage brushes them all aside and simply says that it begins and ends with Jesus. That's wonderful news for us. That is great news. Not only is there no created thing that could bring us closer to God, but there's no created thing that can separate us from God. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It is all in Jesus. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God's power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so listen to me this morning. If your religious system includes anything more than Jesus, why don't you just drop it? Simplify this morning. Simplify your life. Condense the nonsense, so to speak. It begins and ends with Jesus. He is all you need. And so anything else, you can simply get rid of it. That is such good news that we can go directly to the source of all life. And so if there's anything else, you can get rid of it. But perhaps it's something more insidious for you. Maybe it's not looking to go through certain intermediaries or emanations or angels or saints or Mary. Perhaps for you, it's a little more sneaky. Maybe you're caught up in feeling like you need to perform for God. I've got to tell you this morning, our Christianity is not based upon performance. If it was, you and I would be in horrible trouble. Our standing before God is not according to our performance. He is not impressed with you, I'm sorry. He's God. He formed you out of dirt. Hard for him to be impressed by you. (laughs) Nor is he disappointed with you. He has placed you in the kingdom of his beloved son and he views you through the work and person of Jesus Christ. So it's theologically impossible for him to be disappointed with you. Your standing before him, Christian, is in grace what you don't deserve as opposed to performance. That's great news. So be free from thinking you need to perform for God and be in his good graces. And today I read my Bible so God is happy with me. And then yesterday I didn't so God was bummed with me. That's from the pit of hell, people. He loves you perfectly. He can't love you anymore. He can't love you any less. Because of that love, we should want to read the Bible. We should want to pray and fellowship and take communion, worship on so on and so forth. But it does not earn us merit. Perhaps for you it's even more sneaky. Maybe you're seeking the approval of men. 
Oh, listen. There are few things in life that are more destructive than the longing for the approval of men. You have the total approval of God. What can man say to lift your heart? You have absolute acceptance in Jesus Christ. What could man possibly do to better that? If God is for you, what man could possibly be against you? And yet so often, Christians are all caught up in looking for the approval of somebody. And they have these needs. I I need to hear this from this person. I need to feel this from this person. I need to have that. It's okay to have needs, but I'm telling you, no person will ever meet your needs. If you're looking for a person to meet your needs, you will be disappointed and they will be disappointed. You were designed to have your needs met by God. He is the only one that can do it. And when your needs are met by Him, then people are cool. It's no problem then. Then you can be satisfied with people when you're satisfied with God. But until your joy is the approval of God, you will seek the approval of men and you'll be sorely disappointed for the duration of your life. Be free from that in the name of Jesus. Perhaps for you, it's uh, reliance upon ritual. You think you've got to do thus, so, this, and that, and the other to get to God. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that we can enter boldly into the throne of grace in times of need. Maybe you look to attendance at church, and if I just show up and clock in, then God is impressed. Listen, I'm sorry to disappoint you. There is no angel in heaven assigned to keeping church attendance records. There simply isn't. Attendance at church does not merit you any favor before God. We ought to want to come because the Lord meets us here and speaks to us and the fellowship of the saints is wonderful and it's a conduit for God's blessing into our lives, the church is. But be very careful lest you esteem the church too highly. Lest you esteem any person too highly. Let me tell you a horrible fact about the church. The church is made up of people. (laughs) It's the worst thing about it. And as long as the church is made up of people, the church is going to let you down because people are sinners. And this building, this church, this thing is full of sinners. There's going to be disappointment sooner or later. And so if if, if your hope or your joy or security is in a church, brother, you are headed for shipwreck. It needs to be in the head of the church, Christ Jesus. And if you are putting any man, any pastor, any leader on a pedestal, you are sinning and that is danger because only Christ Jesus should be on a pedestal in your life. And he is the only one who will never leave you or forsake you. I'm telling you right now, if you have any leader or pastor on a pedestal, he will disappoint you. It is only a matter of time. I guarantee you that you will be disappointed. It is only a matter of time. So don't do it. Don't rely upon performance before God. Don't rely upon ritual. Don't look for the approval of men. Don't count your church attendance and don't exalt the church or a man. At best, the church is a conduit or a faucet through which God's blessings flow. And you know what, friends? Faucets wear out. And if that faucet breaks, you sure had better be able to go beyond it and find the source of refreshing, the source of the water that flows. Yes, the blessings of God flow through the church, but if the church were to get messed up, would you be able to go beyond it to the source? If any man or any church fails in your shipwreck, your faith is shipwrecked. 
and your faith wasn't in Jesus Christ where it ought to be. Amen? And so the declaration of our text is that Jesus created the universe and is high and exalted over it. And of course, the rest of the New Testament agrees with this. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And then Revelation 3.14 says concerning Jesus Christ, He is the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. He is the beginning or the origin and the source of the creation of God. And so the testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus is the Creator God. And the Old Testament agrees with this wholeheartedly. In fact, let's look at it. Let's go to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, please. Genesis chapter 1. Did you find it? It's pretty easy. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start reading together in the first verse. In the beginning, God. Stop right there. In the beginning, God. I want you to notice, very important, that the Bible starts with God and His existence. This is amazing. Because even though there have been so many anti-God philosophies, both ancient and modern, anti-God philosophies that have affected millions of people throughout history, even though there have been and are so many, the book of God makes no attempt whatsoever to prove the existence of God. It simply states it matter-of-factly. In the beginning, God... As though it were so obvious that God exists that only a fool could say there is no God. In fact, the Bible says that. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so the Bible starts with and assumes the existence of God. And the Bible is unique in this fact. Every other false religion and false philosophy and uh, ancient book begins not with God, but with pre-existing matter or energy. The Bible is the only ancient religious book that begins with the existence of God. Every other one begins with the existence of something that is created. So the Bible simply says that God is, and it is unique in that. Beyond that, I want you to note that there is no attempt in Genesis chapter 1 to refute competing creation accounts or legends or stories. There's no attempt whatsoever to refute competing creation accounts, legends, or stories. Why is that? That is because the book of Genesis predates every other story of creation. And so at the time of Genesis, there were no other stories about creation to compete against because this is the one true account of how all things came to be. 
know and discern that if there were something to refute, the Bible would have refuted it. The book of Colossians that we're now studying, the entire book was written to refute false philosophies about Jesus Christ. If there were false beliefs about creation at the time, Genesis would have refuted it. It is the first account of creation. And every one, and there are thousands that have come after it, are counterfeits. Either from human origin or demonic. Remember what we read last week in 1 Timothy 4.1. It reads, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the last days some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits, spirits that lie about the truth of God and the Word of God. Genesis predates them all. Genesis is the one truth of how all things came into being. In the beginning God. Let's read the rest of the verse now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here we see that time, space, and matter have a beginning. In the beginning, there is the start of time. God created the heavens. There is a beginning of space. And the earth, there is the beginning of matter. In the beginning, God created time, space, and matter. And the declaration of the Bible is that they had a clear and definite start. And science is just now catching up with that fact. Modern science says, oh yes, everything had a clear and definite beginning. No duh, said it in the book of Genesis forever. And it says that God created them. That word in Hebrew, created, is wonderful. It's bara in Hebrew. And the word is only ever used to express the work of God. Because it means to bring forth something out of nothing. To create matter out of utter nothingness. That Hebrew word created, bara, is never used to describe or discuss the work of men. Men can organize, build, make, and form. They can take matter and organize it into a more complex construction. But they cannot create something out of nothing. Man always has to start with pre-existent matter. But the Bible says that God created all things in the universe out of absolutely nothing. And so we see in Genesis chapter 1 that God speaks everything into existence. That before He did it, there is nothing that is physical. But God who is spirit has always existed. Hard for us to get our finite minds around that fact. It's difficult when you begin to think back to the beginning. Okay, God started everything that we see, but then what was before God? Nothing. What made God? Nothing. But how did God get here? He didn't get here. He always was. What do you mean? It's hard for us to get our finite minds to fully comprehend the concept of an infinite eternal and transcendent God. But if you struggle with that, let me share with you the only other alternative. The only alternative to the concept of an infinite, eternal, and transcendent God is the concept of an eternal, self-existent universe. Either God has always existed and He made all things, or all things have simply always existed. And that is incomprehensible. You either have an eternal God or you have eternal matter. Those are the only choices. And I need to tell you that eternal matter 
is an impossibility. The scientific law of cause and effect. The scientific law of cause and effect simply stated says that every material effect must have an adequate cause that existed before the effect. Every material effect must have an adequate cause that existed before the effect. You see, the universe could not possibly create itself because matter cannot create matter according to scientific law, not theory law. Matter cannot create matter. The wonderful thing is God is not matter. God is spirit. And so God has eternally existed and He spoke into existence all matter. I want you to notice that the product of God's creativity is a tri-universe. Time, space, and matter. The project of God's creativity is a tri-universe, time, space, and matter. It's a trinity or a triunity. You see, the universe is not part time and part space and part matter, but rather it is all time, all space, and all matter. It is the universe, a tri-unity. What that teaches us is that God in the creation of nature was reflecting his own triune nature. He is not part God the Father, part God the Son, and part God the Spirit. He is God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit, and they are all one. The triune nature of God reflected in the the creation of God. It's beautiful. Let's read Genesis 1 through 3 together. And we'll see here that the Trinity is portrayed very clearly. From the opening verses of the Bible, the Trinity is spoken very clearly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness was moving over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Here we see the Trinity reflected in three verses. In verse 1, we see God the Father. In verse 2, we see God the Spirit. The Spirit was hovering or moving over the surface. And in verse 3, we see God the Son. Do you see God the Son there? You say, where is God the Son? Where is Jesus in verse 3? What does it say? It says, and God said... Then God said, he spoke into creation. He created with his word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Who is the word of God? When you say Jesus, can you say it like you mean it? Who is the Word of God? Jesus! There you go. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, we see Jesus Christ in creation when it says, And God said, The Word, let there be light, and there was light. God the Father, God the Spirit, 
God the Son, the triune nature of God, functioning in the creation of the world. By the way, that word God used there in the opening verse of Genesis is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. And it's a plural word. It's a plural word for God, meaning God's. Im in Hebrew is a masculine plural ending. Elohim. Wait a minute. I thought that there was one God. Yeah, but in the Old Testament, over 2,000 times, it uses the plural name for God, Elohim, for the one true God. The Bible is contradicting itself. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, a basic foundation of the faith, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When we go to Israel, we will hear people praying that. The Jews pray it every single day. It is a basic foundation of the Word of God that God is one. They pray in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet we see here in Genesis that he uses a plural word for God. What's going on? Listen. There is one God, but when it uses the plural name there, Elohim, it is what we might call a majestic plural. A majestic plural. That is to say that the singular word for God cannot fully express his majesty. And so when the word of God is wanting to express his majesty and his omnipotence, he is spoken of in the plural, though he is one. We see it reflected in Genesis 1.26. Let us make God in our image, said God. It's a majestic plural. Queen Victoria used it of herself one time when she said, we are not amused. Queen Victoria said that one time of herself, singular, we are not amused. Kind of weird when you hear someone say we about themselves, huh? Hey, bro, you coming over later? We might be there. Uh-oh. But historically speaking, there is the idea of a majestic plural. We even see it in some old literature known as the Quran which is false in his concept and identification of God, and yet I use it to prove the point uh, of of, uh, plural being used to speak of one God or the majestic plurality. In the Quran, God refers to himself, the false God, Allah, as us. It's not the real God. In fact, the Quran explicitly denies the existence of the Trinity. And yet in the Bible, over 2,000 times, we see the word Elohim. It is used to express the majesty and the omnipotence of a singular triune God. It's wonderful. It's absolutely beautiful, an expression of his majesty, Elohim. So it says in Psalm chapter 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens, When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou wouldst take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? What a wonderful proclamation. The psalmist says, God, you are majestic, and I see your majesty displayed in the splendor of creation. What am I that you would think of me? And yet God does think of you. It says in the Old Testament that his thoughts toward you are good and wonderful and splendid and they are more numerous than all the sand on every beach in the world. Jesus said that God has numbered the hairs on your head. 
that he is infinitely concerned with your comings and your goings, that he is intimately concerned with every aspect of your being, and yet he is high and exalted and amazing and lofty, and yet he loves little you and me. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful maker. How great is our God. We don't see it perfectly now. We confess that. We don't see the majesty and the glory of Elohim perfectly now. But one day we will. I just came back from an anniversary trip this week. My wife and I had our eighth anniversary. And uh, someone had given us some gift certificates to a little bed and breakfast up in Carmel or Cambria or one of those little places. And we went up there and the place where we were staying, this lodge, had these wonderful gardens. And it was part of the attraction. You know, my wife and I are into flowers and gardens and stuff. And we walked through these gardens and we're looking at all the beautiful plants. And we came around a corner and there's the oddest thing. There was a bed frame there, a beautiful, ornate, big bed frame. And it had flowers, big, beautiful ones growing out of it. It was a flower bed. It was pretty cool. But then to the right of it, there was a vanity. In the midst of this garden, with all these plants growing around, there was a vanity with a mirror on it, and flowing down from the top of the mirror was water across the, the, the surface of the mirror, and it made the neatest effect. It, was just, it just kind of blurred everything, and my wife went and stood right in front of the mirror, and I was standing behind her, and she just stood there and looked at that blurry image for a minute. She said the neatest thing. She said, Britt, according to the Bible... This is how we see God right now. But when he comes, we'll see him like this. And she turned around and looked at me with all her beauty and glory and majesty. And I beheld her beauty in clarity. The Bible says that concerning God, now we see him dimly. But then when he comes, we shall see him face to face and we shall know him even as we are known. And on that day, the mountains will go, yes! And the trees will go, all right! Because everyone will see the majesty of the coming king. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the beauty of his creation. And Lord, this morning we're in awe of the fact that you know us and love us and think of us. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I just ask that you would so work in our hearts that you would be in your rightful place in our lives, that you would be enthroned, Jesus Christ. In our hearts and minds, you'd be the name above every name. That we would continually bow and confess. Thank you for how glorious and wonderful and majestic you are, God. You are indescribable and great, and you love us still. We receive that love this morning with gratitude, and we reciprocate with praise. Let's come before the Lord and praise his name and bless him.